0: Welcome to the Tom Nelson Podcast. This is my episode number 100, and my guest today is Robert Zubrin. Hello, and thanks for inviting me on your show. I'm an
1: engineer. I'm actually originally a nuclear engineer, but got involved in aerospace, and most of my career has been in aerospace. But my doctorate's actually in nuclear engineering, and my initial work was both in fusion research and then in the the involvement with the fission plants, but then I got hired by Martin Marietta to do preliminary design of interplanetary missions, and that's in 88, and I've been in aerospace ever since. I'm interested in both space and nuclear because I believe it is imperative that humanity have an open future, a future without limits. A future that is constrained by limits turns humanity against each other. It is a prescription for a future of war, for genocide, for tyranny. And it needs to be overthrown. We need to have the Star Trek future, not the Soiling Green future. And both space exploration and nuclear power are parts of that. You just came out this month with the case for nukes, right? That's right. It's my latest book, The Case for Nukes. How we can beat global warming and create a free, open, and magnificent future.
0: Just checking, is that coming out on Audible at all?
1: It will be eventually. Right now, it's just available in both paper and Kindle editions. But we are talking with people who will produce an audible edition,
0: but that, that'll be a while. Would you like to give us a little teaser or some of the information from the book to, about what that book is about? Sure. Look, the the
1: book starts out at, at the beginning, you know, with eight propositions, which, you know, only four or five are acceptable to any political political tribe of the moment, but they're all true, in my opinion. Proposition one, global warming and anthropogenic atmospheric chemistry change are both real, but number two, they are not currently a crisis. Okay, The world is not actually burning up right now. That's a counterfactual claim, but they're going to become a crisis unless something is done to effectively change the current trajectory events. Number four, the primary solution offered by those who recognize this problem, reducing carbon emissions by making fuel less affordable, is unethical and impractical, and consequently deserves to fail, has failed, and will inevitably continue to fail, spectacularly. Five, that the claim that modern civilization can be powered by updated forms of pre-fossil fuel energy sources is nonsensical. Okay? Six, that the more radical prescription of global population reduction offered by those who recognize, such as Michael Moore, for example, that these so-called renewable energy sources won't do the job, they offer population reduction, this would be even worse, much worse. The number seven, that far from contracting our energy use, human progress must and will inevitably entail continued exponential growth of human energy power generation and therefore that the widespread adoption of nuclear energy is essential for a positive human future. And to amplify on the second to last point, which in a certain way is the most important of the list, number seven, we're gonna need a lot more energy because the primary problem in the world today is not global warming, which is quite small, or air pollution, which is real and which does cause major health problems, but is poverty 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 kills hundreds of millions of people every year okay you know hundreds of millions of people are killed by poverty and directly in some cases through starvation but more generally through indirect sources such as malnutrition that makes people vulnerable to disease or violence which is created in an impoverished environment And those it doesn't kill, it it ruins their lives. They're sentenced to lives, you know, squeezing sugar cane or some other horrible job like that, never getting a chance to exercise their human potential. This is the biggest problem in the world. Well, okay. Now you take the United States, which is one of the richest countries in the world. Our average income here is $50,000 a year. And yet there are some poor people in America. However, the average income worldwide is $10,000 a year, okay? So, U.S. is way off the curve in terms of being way above average. So, average is $10,000, which, by the way, someone making $10,000 a year would be working below minimum wage in the United States, and the and half the world is below average. And this is the real problem, and if we were to simply – raise the whole world to the current American standard of living, which would be, I think, a a good goal for the 21st century, you'd have to increase worldwide power generation at least five times, five times. And if you did that and tried to do that on fossil fuels, then you'd have real air pollution problems and and also uh, accelerated climate change. But in fact, the air pollution would be a far more immediate concern. So we have to increase energy use a lot, okay, but we have to do it in a source that is available at huge scale, and it just doesn't emit carbons. Or in the case of you know solar power, they produce huge amount of uh, fluorine compounds that cause incredible environmental devastation in China and things like that. We we need something that's clean, and nuclear power is both clean and
0: massively available. What do you think are the real objections for environmentalists? Okay, now the term environmentalist is tricky,
1: okay, because really there's two kinds of environmentalism that are quite distinct. One is practical environmentalism, that is people don't like litter all over the place and people don't want toxic waste dumped into the water supply and people don't like breathing smoke. Okay, so this is practical environmentalism addresses this. How are we going to clean up the air? How are we going to clean up the water? How are we going to clean up the sidewalk? Okay, the, how do we create a nice environment for people to live in? And by that criteria, I'm an environmentalist. I think the vast majority of people are environmentalists, if that is what you mean by environmentalism. Okay, but then there is another kind of environmentalism, which I call ideological environmentalism. And what this does is it seeks to use incidents, whether real, exaggerated or entirely imagined of human insult to the environment as evidence for a prosecutorial case against human liberty. Okay, they say humans are running around creating environmental devastation, therefore we must abolish human liberty the the or constrain it severely or constrain human numbers activities and liberties and so th- it, that's what it is and you know there's a chinese proverb which is um where there is a will to convict evidence is never lacking okay so if there is a desire to limit human liberty you can come up with all sorts of reasons for it you can say because they're destroying the environment or you can say because it leads to Exploitation, or you can say because it leads to off-color sexual habits, or whatever. That is the 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 people who are against human liberty will find any excuse to justify their thing. And so, the ideological, a practical environmentalist would support nuclear power because it gets rid right of the smoke. Okay, the the the. An ideological environmentalist opposes it because it solves a problem they need to have.
0: Was that a topic of your book, Merchants of Despair? Yes, it was.
1: In Merchants of Despair, I I, I dive deep into ideological environmentalism. And, and before it was environment, you know, Malthusianism. We have to limit human consumption because there just isn't enough to go around. In other words, Malthus wasn't talking about damage to the environment, but he wanted to crush the poor because there just isn't enough for everyone. Okay, And then the idea later on, there were people who said, we have to crush the poor because otherwise if they multiply too much, they will spread inferior genes. These are the eugenicists and the Nazis. Okay, And then you have the, 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 the environmental argument. But the, the problem is always different. The solution is always the same.
0: I heard you on a different podcast. You had a great quote about the Sierra Club, why they came out against nukes. And do you remember that one about how it might cause unnecessary growth? Economic oh, growth, so. yes. Okay,
1: look. In the 1960s, Okay, the first commercial nuclear power plant went live in 1957, shipping port, and they started building nuclear power plants in the 60s, but it was still a relatively small part of our power. By 1973, while there were a lot of orders coming in, the actual amount of nuclear power we were generating was still only 3% of our total electricity, and the Sierra Club in the 60s, in opposing... Fossil fuel fired power plants would say, we don't need this, why not just use nuclear power? Okay. However, in the early 1970s, uh, Malthusianism, the Malthusians came on with very strong ideological offensive, epitomized by the book, The Limits to Growth, published by the Club of Rome in 1972, which claimed that if, unless we stop economic growth, we're going to run out of everything by the year 2000. Because they had a computer and they said this is the amount of oil reserves and this is the rate we're using it and you have to divide this number by that number you come out with, you know, 28 years and so it's all done in the year 2000 and then copper's going to run out in 1999 and zinc in 2002 and basically you know you got 30 years you're done okay and and this all seemed very logical to a lot of people and. Anyone who opposed this was denounced as like a Neanderthal from the Chamber of Commerce who just wants to keep making money, despite the fact that the reality is, is we're going to run out of everything in 28 years, but we could maybe make it 40 years if we could cut consumption by 30%. So the Sierra Club, in well, there was a couple of things involved here. First of all, there was that, which was conditioning an intellectual atmosphere, favoring Malthusianism. And secondly, what happened was... As a result of the oil embargo of 73, 74, the price of oil multiplied four times. And as a result oil, which was still producing 20% of America's electricity in 1973 was now under threat. It was really too expensive and nuclear power could clearly undersell it. And the, the oil company started funding environmentalists to go after nuclear power. The first people who got a major grant was Friends of the Earth, who split off from the Sierra Club on the issue of nuclear power saying, we're against nuclear power, you're for it, you're not good enough. And, and so, Atlantic Richfield gave them a big grant. And then the, the Sierra Club saw, well, there was money in going anti-nuclear, and they went anti-nuclear, and the Exxon gave them a big grant. But in explaining its turn to its membership, because during the 60s, the Sierra Club's position had always been we are for nuclear power because it's cleaner. Okay. And you don't dump stuff into the air and you don't have to dam fleet free flowing rivers and all that kind of stuff that we care about. And now they were doing a 180. And they said, here's the reason because nuclear power by creating unlimited energy will encourage unlimited and unnecessary economic growth." This was in their statement issued in 1974 when they reversed themselves on nuclear power. Okay, So they did not oppose nuclear power because they thought it was more environmentally dangerous than coal. They had made it very clear during the preceding decade it was much more environmentally attractive than coal. Okay. But they said, but you have to take into account the secondary effect. It's going to cause economic growth. And that causes much more pollution. Okay. The the then what they said was, we're going to use the waste issue as a tactic to shut down the nuclear industry. We will prevent them from establishing a safe waste repository, and this will create a problem that will shut them down. Okay. And They stopped waste reprocessing, okay, where you get the plutonium and your unused uranium out of the radioactive waste and then put it right back into the reactor, which reduces the total amount of waste by 95%, okay, and they do this in France, but they stopped us from doing this in the United States, okay, and they blocked seabed disposal of nuclear waste, which is the simplest way you classify the waste so it's not water soluble. You put it in stainless steel cans, you take it out to the middle ocean, you drop it and it goes a hundred meters down into seabeds that have been stable for a hundred million years and not going anywhere. They blocked that. And then they waged a continual war against the establishment of a land-based nuclear repository. Now you should understand, okay, nuclear power is unchallenged in its naval application. A nuclear, you know, you can generate electricity any way you like, but, an, and, and and to the consumer, the kilowatts a kilowatt when it comes out of a plug, okay? And it doesn't matter whether it's waterfall, a nuke, or a coal-fired power plant, okay? But a nuclear submarine is a different animal than a diesel-powered submarine, because it doesn't have to surface. It can travel around the world without surfacing. And the time when the sub is vulnerable is when it surfaces, okay? And they took the Nautilus out in 1954 on trials, and it practically sank the whole American fleet in war games because there was like, they couldn't touch it. And the, the the so the Navy knows it wants nuclear submarines, and no one could tell them, well, why don't you use solar energy for your submarines or windmills for your submarines or something? Okay. The, 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 so no way is the Navy giving up its nuclear submarines. So- the Navy has a nuclear waste storage facility. It's stored in salt caverns in New Mexico. So, when the people say there's no technical solution for new- storing nuclear waste, they are simply lying point blank. Nuclear waste is stored. OK, it, this would be like people who are against cars convince the city government to ban parking. And then they say, we can't have cars because there is no technical solution to parking them, and the the, the if if parking is outlawed, then parking becomes technically impossible. Okay, the, the, the yes, you can put your car into park, but it's illegal, so there is no way to park a car. It can't be done, and the the the. And that's basically what they've done with nuclear waste. And then you have these same people say that they're concerned about public health and safety when they insist, therefore, that the nuclear waste be stored on site at nuclear power plants in the suburbs of
0: major cities instead of being put under a mountain in the Nevada desert. How long should it take to build a new nuclear plant if you throw out all the red tape? I think you mentioned something like three years versus 16 years. Yes, Okay, the Nautilus,
1: which was the very first nuclear power plant and which was built along with the rest of the submarine inside of three years. And then the first commercial nuke, Shipping Point, was built by the same team, Rick Over's team, in three years. Okay, and if anything, the time to build a nuke should have gotten shorter with more practice. You know, it takes much less man hours to build an automobile today than it did in Henry Ford's time we we should be able to produce these much faster and and certainly no slower but in fact the time has multiplied more than fivefold and and in my book the case for nukes i go through data showing that as the time increased and it increased due to hyperregulation and an insane regulatory structure actually yeah. which i'll discuss in a minute but as this increased starting in the mid 70s with the carter administration and then continuing over time the cost of the plant went up at literally as time squared. Now you would say, well, I can understand why it should go up with time because labor hours is cost. But what happens is the longer it goes, the more things accrete to the project, including especially lawsuits, management consultants, and consultants and lawyers cost you a lot more than plumbers and construction workers. And everything becomes so much more difficult. And then there's also inflation. And other things, and and then you have the fact that what happens is the, the 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 nuclear regulatory will insist on changes in the design while it's in the middle of construction, and if if you've ever like done a house renovation or anything of the sort, you, you'll know there's nothing more expensive than changing the plan while you're in the middle of it, and you know that's what they do, and and the more time, the more of this that can go on, and. But also getting back the regulatory structure, which is largely put in place by the Carter administration, which was infested with Malthusians from the U.S. Committee for the Club of Rome. You know, it's a 32-step process, which looks like a map of the New York subway system. And But each of those 32 boxes, it has a little subway system inside of it. And some of them are really crazy. Like one of those boxes is the approval from the Environmental Protection Agency, which will not only ask for all sorts of data about the plant design to assure them in advance that it can't pollute, they will demand proof to questions like, uh, why did you decide to build a nuclear power plant instead of an apartment building, okay, or a coal-fired plant or a windmill or a, a zoo? That is, imagine you were trying to build, you have some land, you're trying to build a log cabin and you go to the mayor and they'd only ask you to just see your plans to make sure it's structurally sound and not a fire hazard. They want you to prove to them that it was the right decision to build a log cabin instead of a chalet or a Cape Cod or an A-frame and, or a candy store or a zoo or a ballistic missile silo. And, and let's say somehow you managed to do that to the mayor's satisfaction. It is now open to interveners so your enemies can come in and challenge the mayor's decision in your favor. And now you have to go to court. And if you can convince the jury that you were right and, and the mayor was right and not the interveners, they will then appeal to the next court. And the, 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 this is what happens this is in absolute insanity. Now, you think about this. If you go on a road trip The police give you a ticket if you speed. Fair enough. You don't have to go to the police station in advance of the road trip and prove to the police with a plan proving to them that you are not going to speed. Okay. And not only that, after the police approve it, that it is now open to challenge from interveners who might not want you to do it. And it can take you to court on your various items in your plan to prove to the court that the police were right in accepting your plan. I mean, you know, and and yet that is how we deal with a nuclear power plant and many other kinds of environmental enforcement, I might add. And I think this is totally wrong. I think that The way environmental enforcement should be done is people who actually create damage to the environment should be prosecuted, and people who do not should be left alone. You should not have to prove in advance, not only to a regulatory authority, but to the entire world who is free to anarchically intervene against you that in advance that you're not going to commit a crime. I mean, that's just crazy, and that's how it's
0: done. Now, is there some organization or some small group of organizations that are doing most of the blocking of nukes in the U.S., or is it just tentacles everywhere of all sorts of people trying to block it?
1: Well, there there certainly is a number of of not-so-small organizations that are heavily committed to this. I mean, Sierra Club, National Resources Defense Council, the, the Environmental Defense Fund and one could go on which have billion dollar budgets and therefore staffs of lawyers. And these people sometimes intervene in this case, such cases on their own because they have a commitment to do this sort of thing. And in some cases they're funded by people who have a commercial interest in stopping a nuclear power plant. And once again, in the early and mid-70s, this was actually fossil fuel interests. In the more recent period, it was the renewable energy folks, the wind and solar people, who absolutely wanted, you know, now that we've created global warming as a threat that must be addressed, they want it addressed by themselves, not by nuclear power. So the so yeah, if you have it's like having a gang of mercenaries for sale, okay. And the mercenaries are predisposed to want to sack cities and rape women. But guess what? There might be a city that is a trading competitor to, to city B, city A, and they will fund the mercenaries They say, look, we want you to attack them. And in addition to the loot you can get by attacking them, and also the ability to recruit because you can convince people who might want to be mercenaries that by joining your band, they'll get loot, we'll throw in some cash to help you decide that it should be city B is the one you attack instead of city A. Okay, the mercenaries got to attack somebody, okay, but the you know the, they're not unreasonable in accepting the more commercially attractive choice.
0: <laughs> in a rational world, it's pretty clear to you that nukes have very little in terms of drawbacks, right? It's safe, it works, there's enormous amounts of energy. But how can how can we convince people, or how can we win and put up more nukes in the U.S.? Well,
1: you know, I mean, look, in one way, the Malthusian global warming campaign has backfired on them, in that while they were basically promoting extreme anxiety about global warming for the purpose of constraining industrial growth and human liberty, they promoted this so aggressively that there are a lot of people who are actually worried about global warming, not because they want to limit human liberty, but because they've convinced that this is an existential crisis, that human civilization is going to be destroyed unless we do something to stop global warming. And then these people who have not been adequately indoctrinated into the Malthusian religion then say, well, why not do nuclear power? And these other people say, no, you don't get it. Blah, blah, blah. But they say, but but it, it, it doesn't have any carbon emissions, so why not do nuclear power? And so you have people, including, I mean, even AOC, mm-hmm. is saying, well, why not do nuclear power? And Cory Booker in the Democratic Party, more centrist, why not do nuclear power? And, and there's no answer for that unless they come out in the open and say, look, the agenda here is to reduce living standards. You are wrecking our crisis. So that's the point. They've oversold it. And so I think that, you know, we need to work with such people. There's an entire fairly substantial faction of the Democratic Party, calls itself the third way, which is pro-nuclear. And in my book, I, I do identify some of their leaders and and they're mostly women, actually. And, you know, and and they've put a feminist spin on nuclear power. And well, good. That, 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 that there could be many different paths to the same place, and we can march separately and strike together. The the point here is actually, look, the program of trying to combat global warming by making fuels more expensive is a ultra regressive program. Mm-hmm. Okay, it is tar. I mean, carbon tax, all sales taxes are regressive. Okay carbon taxes are more regressive than the average sales tax because they don't tax on the basis of price. They tax on the basis of mass. That is a cheap dress, at the Gap and a high fashion dress involved the same amount of carbon in their production and transportation, but one costs 10 times as much as the other. If you tax them on price, one is taxed 10 times as much as the other. Now the woman who can afford a $5,000 dress can pay a 10% tax, $500, much better than the woman who is buying a $50 dress can pay the $5, okay? So that's regressive. That's a sales tax though. If you, on the other hand, you tax them both $5, then the poor woman is is being taxed something that is significant to her and the rich woman is being taxed practically nothing. So carbon taxes are ultra aggressive and given really what is actually the income distribution in our society, if one does look at race that is on average, Black people are poorer than white people. And so, an ultra-aggressive tax is a racist tax. That's all there is to it. And and to people perhaps like AOC, whose primary concern is, well, her primary concern is maintaining support of a low-income district, and their primary concern is bread and butter issues. And so, The program of rigging up fuel and electricity prices is absolutely counter to their interests and needs to be opposed. And so if one looks at the left, there's a lot of definitions to left, okay? But the old left was interested in unions and the eight-hour day and working conditions and things like this, bread and butter issues, the plebeian left. They have to be against the carbon tax program, okay? The cultural left that opposes economic growth for aesthetic reasons, okay? They can be against nuclear power because yes, it promotes economic growth. But but if, if one you know looks at the Democratic Party, you know the FDR coalition included very substantially a blue collar. People as, as as its core, and Democrats cannot afford to write them off, and so we need to make clear what the bread and butter issues are here. The okay? bread and butter issues, and you know, if you think that you know, the world would be nicer without you know all these ugly cars driven by low income type people clogging up the highways. You can be what used to be called a limousine leftist, or now I guess it'd be a Tesla leftist. The, 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 but, you know, those people driving those used Chevys and Subarus. you know, they want to be able to drive the cars and they vote. And you know, Hillary Clinton defied the odds by losing to Donald Trump. The and the way she managed to lose was by losing the industrial Midwest. If you can remember back to 2016, the big surprise on election night came in. Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, okay, all went for Trump. And this was the heartland of the coalition of the Democrats since FDR. And, you know, what some wit said was, you know, what profiteth a candidate if she gains the donations of Tom Steyer but loses the votes of the industrial Midwest? And, and that's what happened to her. Now, Biden managed to win by at least playing a pro-blue-collar Democrat. That's the vibe he tries to give off, you know, six-pack Joe. And the – well, and that's a necessary vibe for them. But the content of that has to be pro-growth. And guess what? Pro-growth is not just in the interest of labor. It's also in the interest of capital. So there's a harmony of interest here, and that's the coalition that needs to be built. Americans for growth, whether they call themselves Democrats or Republicans or Libertarians.
0: What do you see happening in terms of new nukes in other countries like China or France or Sweden? All right. Now,
1: in the early 70s, we were getting orders for two new nuclear power plants every month in the United States. And if that had been allowed to continue, we would have decarbonized our power grid by the 90s. But it was aborted. And so we're just 20% nuclear. France did not abort. And so they are 75% nuclear today and another 10% hydroelectric. And as a result, France has one-fifth the carbon emissions per unit electricity as, say, Germany where the germans are you know they can talk environmentalism to you till you die of boredom okay but in fact what they are are technophobic reactionaries and their program of using natural power sources like cutting down forests okay and coal and lignite is they are if if carbon emissions are, are indeed a climate crime as as they say then they are the worst climate criminals in Europe, easily. the But France, now France had a pro-nuclear orientation under De Gaulle, he saw nuclear as the future, and he, France had to recover its grandeur, and so they needed to be on the cutting edge. And he managed to organize a labor capital coalition that went as far left as the Communist Party of France, and that supported this, because this was jobs, this was everything. And it was all true and they did it. Now, Macron began to, because of the fashionableness of anti-nuclear, start began when he got into office to say, we need to denuclearize. This was the past and we're modern and fashionable now. But just in time came the Russia crisis and he did a 180. And now he's gone back to being pro-nuclear. Okay. The German leadership, on the other hand, is heavily infiltrated by people who are Kremlin allies, in some cases who've been Kremlin allies since the 80s. And this includes the current Prime Minister, Scholz, the previous one, Merkel, and the one before her, Schroeder, who's actually a member of the board of Gazprom. And they literally shut down the nuclear industry of Germany. They destroyed, uh, literally destroyed 22 gigawatts of nuclear power plants in order to to redirect German electricity money to Russia. Okay, This was done to help fund the Putin regime and the amounts of money involved are quite large. In fact, the amount of money Germany was sending to Russia through the Nord Stream pipelines or as the Poles and Ukrainians call them, the Molotov-Ribbentrop pipelines, after the infamous Molotov Ribbentrop pact where Nazi Germany and Communist Russia split Eastern Europe between them the the was actually larger than the entire Russian military budget so germany not only funded the russian invasion of ukraine it funded the russian nuclear weapons program and hypersonic weapons program okay you know so but Okay, so Germans anti-nuclear. Now, Russia is very pro-nuclear, and Russia is exporting nuclear reactors around the world, and their main competitor coming on strong is, guess who? China. Okay, China is the next big thing in everything, and in particular, nuclear power. There's currently 450 commercial nuclear power plants in the world. China plans to build 450 more domestically by the year 2050. The, yeah. It's rate about one a month, they, and also to export them to compete with the Russians in the third world. And unfortunately, the United States is not a serious competitor in this race to provide energy to Africa and most of Asia and other places. Best free world competition are the French and the South Koreans. The South Korea, they can still build a nuclear power plant in four years, as they can do in China. And uh, and my guess is now the Chinese have bought nuclear power plants from everybody, um, in, including American and Russian. And, and now they've gone through them and they've decided which are the best ideas and they have a Chinese design now. And, you know, what can I say? My guess is they'll find a way to build nuclear power plants in two years. You know, you go into a Chinese restaurant, serves fast these people are all business and,
0: and and they're gonna do it. Were you just uh, yesterday maybe helping to promote a movie by Oliver Stone on this issue? Yeah. The I we had uh
1: a, a, one of the showings was here in Littleton, Colorado, the Alamo Draft House Theater, which is a kind of a fun movie theater where you, you can sit in seats and they bring meals to you and everything and Occasionally, when they have premieres of movies there, there's someone associated with the movie who is a guest speaker. So people there are, are used to having a live part of the show. So yeah, I, I did a question and answer thing at, at the end of the premiere. And I would say the audience was pretty won over by the movie. I, I thought, I mean, I disagree with Oliver Stone on a number of issues in particular, Russia, but- he, in terms of what he said in this movie, it was pretty much all true. There were some things that were a little simplified, but basically true. And and the movie was a very strong presentation. And I think it, won, it,
0: it certainly won over that audience. What do you see as the future, your desired future for nukes in the U.S.? Would it be a number of huge power plants in each state, for example? Or is there some future for really small ones for each community or something? Both look. The large nuclear
1: power plant has the advantage of economy of scale, but there's a big push now for smaller plants that can be manufactured in factories, and so that you can pretty much assemble them on site. You know, doing anything in a factory is going to be quicker and more efficient than doing it at a construction site. I think studies have shown you take for example a weld might take eight times as long at a construction site as it does in a factory where everything is all set up and conditions are controlled and it never rains and you have a well-structured chain of command with everybody knows everybody. They're not all brought together in an ad hoc way and everything. So the idea is to basically create them in in pieces, small enough to be built in factories and trucked or barged to where they're going to go. And the other advantage of the small plants is that they can address small markets. What if you have a town of 100,000 people okay that's too small to justify a 1000 megawatt reactor that's the right size for a 100 megawatt reactor okay so if you're making modular 100 megawatt reactors there's your market it's a market that's not addressed by the larger plants and so it makes it much more transportable and it opens up large markets that are not really suitable for the mega plants now in addition There are people who say the problem with nuclear power is they're still using a 1950s design, which is the pressurized water reactor, which was the design introduced by Rickover on the Nautilus and then at shipping port and is in minor variations. The design of over 90% of all commercial nuclear power plants in the world today. Okay. Now, I disagree that this is a fundamental problem. The reason why that design has lasted this long is because it's a good design, okay? And that's like saying, you know, the problem with automobiles is they all use four wheels. You know, why haven't people come up with something different? Some things are just good designs. Now, and there's been over a 1,000 pressurized water reactors on land or sea over the past 60 years, and not a single person has ever been harmed by a radiological release from a pressurized water reactor. Not one. Chernobyl was not a pressurized water reactor the Fukushima reactors were and despite being destroyed by an earthquake and tsunami still no one outside the plant gate was exposed to a significant radiation dose so you have a natural disaster of cataclysmic proportions and it still didn't cause any nuclear effects the and then Three Mile Island there was just, nothing happened to anyone even who worked at the plant so it's a good design but that's not to say that it's can't be improved on. Now the problem with the hyper-regulatory environment is, if you're having so much trouble getting licensed a design that the regulators are completely familiar with and which they've seen, you know, literally hundreds of previous examples, and which there is a multi-decade track record of safety. All right, what's going to be your luck with a new design? Let's see, well, you want to choose a breeder reactor? I mean, my God, what well, think of all the what if scenarios that somebody can come up with. So yes, the pressurized water reactor only uses about one percent of the energy that's available in the uranium fuel that's fed into it. One percent, okay? A breeder could do over ninety. But guess what? The fuel cost of a pressurized reactor is only 5% the cost of the electricity. 95% is the capital cost that went into building it, which is being caused by the regulatory burden. So, we, do we want to cut the fuel cost in half while tripling, you know, as we cut the five in half and triple the 95? No, no one wants to do that. Okay, so I said, I'm going to leave that alone. Now, if the regulatory burden was not so great, okay, so that was 5% here and then another 5% for the rest of it, okay, well, then first of all, nuclear power cost one-tenth of what it now costs because we cut from 100 down to 10, okay, but then also at that point, the fuel cost would be 50% of the cost of the power, and somebody would say, well, how do I cut that down? And now there's things that are being offered. There's the breeder reactors. There's the thorium reactors. Thorium is four times as plentiful as, as uranium. Thorium fission reactors were never developed by the AEC. You wanna know why? Because you can't use the fuel bred in the thorium reactor to make bombs because they are proliferation proof. And the early AEC, its primary interest was making bombs. Okay. And so it, it wanted reactors that could make plutonium. Okay. The thorium cycle breeds thorium. And so you. Uranium-233, which you can't use for a bomb for various complicated reasons, which however are explained in the book. So you want to know the answer to that, read the book. But the thorium reactors would be great. and But who wants to risk increased regulatory obstacles? So we want to have new types of designs, but in order to get them, we have to reduce the regulatory burden. That's going to be the main obstacle. Okay, The people uh, who are introducing a new design who have the best chance within the current regulatory environment is the people who want to make small, modular, pressurized water reactors. They want to keep with the same fundamental type, the Rickover reactor, but in fact, go back to the sizes that Rickover actually built, which right. In the same size range as the small modular reactors of today, 100 megawatt class units are even smaller on submarines because they're at least they're dealing with a, a familiar technology, but on a different scale. But the, the main problem for nuclear to both unleash the pressurized water reactor and then the more advanced type of reactors is to lift the regulatory burden.
0: Are you familiar with the videos from this professor, David Ruzik? He's from Illinois, I think, and he has some good stuff out there about how safe modern nuke technology is. Actually, I'm not familiar with those videos. Okay. I think I might put a link to one or two of those in the show description anyway. Sure. And then what do you see as the future for powering things like airplanes? Is there a way to use nukes to produce liquid fuel to use in planes, that type of thing? Sure. Look, the right technology
1: for aircraft are liquid hydrocarbon fuels. But those fuels can be made using the energy from nuclear power plants. We can literally make artificial jet fuel, or there are other kinds of fuels. I mean, okay, the easiest hydrocarbon fuel to make is methane. Okay. And that's why, for instance, in my Mars Direct plan, we use a nuke on Mars to make methane and oxygen to fuel the return vehicle. And that's also how Musk proposes to do his Mars plan. And methane is a great rocket fuel. But for aircraft, we want something that is liquid at room temperature. And we could, well, you we could make methanol, but that's not as that has less energy per unit weight as a straight hydrocarbon. But if you make methanol, you can turn it into dimethyl ether, which is a terrific diesel fuel. By the way, it's actually superior to petroleum diesel fuel. So that'd be a great way to power ships, trains, and diesel cars. Could all be done with the dimethyl ether, which can be readily produced using nuclear power. The and then if you wanted to, you you could actually make hydrocarbons that I in the lab I've made hydrocarbons comparable to gasoline, starting from methanol, in fact. There's a whole chemistry, part of which is explained in my book, Energy Victory. If you want the real nitty-gritty details, there's a guy called George Ola, Nobel Prize winner, wrote a book called Beyond Oil and Gas, The Methanol Economy, back around 2003, but it's still available somewhere on Amazon. And you really want to know all kinds of chemistry you can do. But once again, you need a primary source of energy available at scale. Now, I wanna talk just a bit about how much nuclear power resources there are. Because, okay, the preferred fuel for nuclear power is from uranium ore, which can be several percent uranium. And then of course, if you had a thorium reactor, you could use thorium, which is four times as plentiful. But just to give you an idea, if if we go beyond the choice ore, okay, and we look at broader sources, granite, granite is about, ordinary granite, like mountains are made of, buildings are made of, is about two parts per million uranium, eight parts per million thorium, and that stuff is about 10 million times as much energy per unit weight as gasoline, now, but it's only 10 parts per million, so when you work those numbers out, what it boils down to is a block of granite contains as much energy as a hundred times its mass and gasoline. So you look at the granite mountains of New Hampshire, you look at granite buildings all around you, you're looking at mountains of energy, gigantic mountains of energy that utterly dwarf the Earth's fossil fuel energy supply. And then if one goes beyond nuclear fission to fusion, then The fusion, the water contains hydrogen, and well, it's two atoms, but each hydrogen, one out of every 6,000 hydrogens are deuteriums, okay, which can be used as fuel in fusion reactors. And basically a gallon of water has enough energy if you use it in a fusion reactor as a 350 gallons of gasoline. That's earth water. Now, if you go to Mars, the water has more deuterium rich, five times as rich. So, in fact, Martian water, a gallon of Martian water is worth about as much as 1,600 gallons of gasoline in terms of its energy content. So, the point is, we got vast amounts of energy. Okay. You know, back at the time of the 1970s energy crisis, the Malthusians said, have got to stop economic growth because there just isn't enough energy. Okay. Well, there's plenty of energy. It's all over the place. And it, it's incredible. And and the thing about this energy, whether you're talking fission, thorium reactors, or fusion reactors, where is this energy really coming from? It's coming from the powers of the creative mind. That's where it's actually coming from. See, it's not true that humanity is limited by a certain amount of natural resources. In fact, there's no such thing as a natural resource. There's only natural raw materials, okay? It is human ingenuity that turns a material into resources. You can't eat dirt, but if you understand agriculture, you can make food come out of dirt. Okay, the oil is invisible. If you went to the general staff of Napoleon Bonaparte that were considering the conquest of a country and you asked them to list the natural resources of country X, they would not have listed its oil. It wouldn't have occurred to them, let alone it's aluminum ore or it's uranium ore or today, or deuterium, okay? None of this, okay? aluminum was not discovered until 1820 it's the second most common element in the earth's crust well third after oxygen silicon and there's aluminum then there's iron okay but it was unknown to chemistry until 1820 and unknown to the consuming public until the 20th century because to create aluminum metal out of aluminum oxide requires science it requires well, it requires electricity, which is a product of science, and it requires knowing how to apply the electricity. And similarly, you know, thorium, well, people have been using thorium for a while. Thorium is the mantle in kerosene lanterns because it's an excellent high-temperature material. But, but no one had any idea that the amount of thorium in the mantle of an energy lantern could produce more energy than that lantern would in its lifetime burning kerosene. The, the mantle contained more energy than all the kerosene you could pour into it again and again and again if you had that lantern for 100 years. It's kind of like the Bible story of Moses getting water out of the rock. Was there really water, water in, in the rock? rock? Okay, well, you know, Moses had God's assistance in getting water out of the rock, okay? So, the, I don't know if there's a God, Okay. In terms of the creative powers of the human mind, which are said to be the image of God by Judeo-Christian religion, that is the source of resources. That is the origin. That's the source of creation. In the beginning was the word logos. That is a religious way of looking at this creative process, which is very, very real. I would just like to, maybe if I could, quickly go down a couple of points which are amplified at length in the book. Because anti-nukes make a variety of points, okay? They say there's no way they couldn't dispose of the waste. Well, we've disposed of that argument. They say nuclear reactors can blow up like bombs. They cannot, okay? The the fuel is nowhere near enriched enough to support a a nuclear explosion, and uh, you can't even have a runaway fission reactor, should not a bomb, but a runaway, in a water-moderated reactor because if the reactor gets too hot, the water turns to steam and the water being there in liquid form is necessary to sustain criticality. And that's why Rick overchose it. And that's why there has never been a runaway chain reaction in any water-moderated reactor because it is physically impossible. They say that nuclear reactors support proliferation. That is not true. Commercial nuclear reactors cannot be used to make bomb-grade material because the plutonium that is bred in a commercial reactor, because of the length of time things are left in a commercial reactor, the plutonium absorbs another neutron, becomes plutonium-240, which ruins it as bomb-grade material. The It's true that the enrichment facilities that are used to enrich uranium to make, say, 3% enriched uranium for a commercial reactor could be used to make, with some difficulty, 90% enriched uranium for a bomb. However you don't need the commercial reactor for that point and in fact one of the reasons why the early aec opposed nuclear reactors was because it would divert enrichment facilities from bomb making and both the united states and the soviet union had hundreds of nuclear bombs before either one of them had a commercial nuclear reactor one could go on and then and finally i, I just want to say this you know look any technology that is useful for civil purposes is also useful for War, by definition, okay? And, you know, I mean, the electricity from a nuclear power plant will support war industries, just like electricity from a solar power, power plant will, okay? And yes, so the electricity from any power plant can be used to make weapons of mass destruction. You could do all this, but the unique destructive potential of, of nuclear weapons it is no longer unique. In fact, okay, you take COVID, Okay. Now, there are people who say that the COVID virus was made in a lab in Wuhan, China, And actually, I don't believe that. There's some evidence to support it. It's not convincing to me. And in any case, that, that's a certainly a very controversial assertion. But what is actually not controversial is that it could have been made in a lab like that. Okay, it could have been. Yeah, nobody disputes the technical feasibility of that being possible. And if you think about that, a virus that killed, I don't know, hundred million people. We don't really have the numbers because the statistics from third world countries are, are meaningless, but a lot of people was made in a facility that cost a tiny fraction of what it costs to enrich enough uranium to make a bomb. And the so as humanity's knowledge has advanced, Both our creative and destructive potentials have advanced and become much more affordable. So, okay, I mean, certainly, if he had thought of it, it would have been within the financial resources of, say, Osama bin Laden to create a biological warfare facility to create viruses that could have killed hundreds of millions of people, okay? And it's certainly within the capacity of, say, North Korea. Or you name it, any outlaw nation. If we're going to avoid mass destruction, we have to create a world where no one feels it's in their interest to destroy the world. Okay. We have to make a world in which there is enough for everyone. Okay. And that can only be done with nuclear power. Only in a world of unlimited
0: resources can all men and women be brothers and sisters. Again, thanks a ton for doing this. I really appreciate it. And I will talk to you later. Robert Zubrin, thank you. Oh, thank you.